The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Nicholas Wandsbutter, and as usual tonight, I have the privilege of sharing the company of uh, His Lordship, Bishop Daniel Dolan, pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Church in Westchester, Ohio, and Father Anthony Chicada, assistant pastor of St. Gertrude the Great, uh, the regular guests uh, for this season of Clerical Conversations on the Crisis. Your Lordship and Father... Welcome to the show, and thanks for being with us once again. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Very nice to be here. My Lord, uh, before we get into the show itself, could I ask uh, you to lead us in a prayer? Oh, certainly. I was hoping you would, Nicholas. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother Mary, of God, Mother of God. Pray for, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of yeah, our death. Amen. Amen. Blessed St. Anne and good St. Joachim, teach all married couples what their special vocation should be for each other, for their children, for the honor and glory of God, as good examples of their faith in Christ, and as faithful, joyful in- instruments of God's holy will. Amen. In the name Amen. of the Father and of the Amen. Son of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you uh, for that, my Lord. And uh, you're welcome. So uh, tonight, what we're going to be discussing is first half of the show. We'll be talking about annulments, and as somewhat related topic to that, we'll be following that up with a discussion of the Catholic order of the household. The the starting point, I think, for the discussion of annulments, uh, to me, is that. Although the Society of St. Pius X narrative is that the expulsion of nine priests in 1983 was all about them being sedevicontists and trying to push this on everyone else, that actually wasn't one of the issues. But one of the big issues was uh, annulments. And uh, I wonder, uh, Bishop Dolan, if you could tell us a little bit about how that factored into what happened in 1983. Well, yes. Uh, thank you, Nicholas. Um, today we're going to be talking about... Uh, annulments about the inviolability of the marriage bond once it is validly contracted. And we'll also be talking about God's plan for husband and wife in the Catholic home, the sacrament of matrimony. Really, these two topics, uh, at least as regards the, the role of the St. Pius X Society and Archbishop Lefebvre, are actually related our Lord himself says that the married love of a husband and wife, specifically husband for his wife, is a sign or a symbol, an image of the love that Christ hath for his church. That's read on the, on the, on the marriage day. But 
the great difficulty that, that we have faced and that so many Catholics still face today is this inability to recognize that there is a new false church in Rome. And in some sense, there's that pull of, uh, the pull of authority and going along to get along and the rest that in effect make us either commit or at least suborn, go along with this spiritual adultery. Of the, of, with, with a false religion, in effect. Well, that's really the story of the separation of the celebrated nine priests, a few years after that, there are actually more, from the Pius X Society in the United States of America. What, what happened um, in 1983 specifically was, was this. It wasn't a question of um, the the liturgy, the, the old missal, nor was it a question that some people totally falsely say of sedevacantism. Nothing to do with that at all. It was a question of what are the practical results that uh, that we have to glean from this question of is that the Catholic Church in Rome or is that a false adulterous church in Rome? Archbishop Lefebvre, as we know, zigzagged. Sometimes he took one position, sometimes he took another. At this particular point in 1983, he was desirous of making a deal with uh, then-Cardinal Ratzinger. Uh, I had a mission in um, many missions at that time that I served in the Pius X Society in some state in the Midwest, and the coordinator, the lay coordinator of the mission, had an annulment and was living with a woman who was not his wife. They came to our attention, to the Pius X priests, and eventually uh, he was confronted, and it was explained to him that 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 the woman you have now is is not your wife, and that's that's, that's not right. You can't you can't go uh, according to these conciliar annulments, and we gave him the reasons why. Well, he wouldn't take uh, my word for it or the word of the other fathers, and he contacted Archbishop Lefebvre. And at that time, his secretary general, help me with the name, Father Chicada, which one was that? Father Patrice LaRoche. Father Patrice LaRoche, yes, he was a little one, I remember. Well, he wrote back and he told him that, no, your annulment from the conciliar church is perfectly valid. And the only reason he did that was that that was the political line of the day, because Lefebvre at that point wanted reconciliation. Had he been freshly insulted by somebody in Rome, they would easily have changed the party line. But at this point, that was the question. And we told him, no, you're committing adultery. We told the man question. You can't live with that woman. She's not your wife. Your first wife is your true wife. It was a question of the practical or the logical conclusion to draw from the question, not the question of annulments, although that's what we're talking about today, first of all. It's a question of the church herself. Is that the Catholic Church or isn't it? Father, can you add anything to this, to my memory here? Well, yes. Uh, the uh, grounds that um, we had been given for the marriage of this gentleman supposedly being declared null was one of the uh, modern um, psychological grounds that had been uh, introduced after Vatican II. And it was something that uh, was obviously uh, quite phony, as phony as a $3 bill. And we'll get into some of the details on what those grounds uh, are uh, later in this evening's discussion, but it was something that that uh, was patently phony and that would never have been uh, recognized as legitimate grounds for annulment 
uh, before the the changes in the church. Hmm. Now, um, what, one question I have was: Was this a general policy of the Society of Saint Pius X at that time that they just accepted uh, Novus Ordo annulments across the board, or was this a bit of uh, favoritism being shown to someone who was important to their to the running of their apostolate? No, I don't think that there uh, there was a general policy. It was simply something that uh, came up uh, at this point. And since the archbishop was involved in uh, negotiations with Ratzinger, uh, he, I suppose, figured he could not very well say that, well, your annulment procedures are phony. And it was the same thing with the question of, of priests ordained in the uh, new rite, that he could not very well uh, say that uh, your the priests who have been ordained in the post-Vatican II rite, under which you have been consecrated a bishop, your evidence, um, are doubtfully ordained. So I think it was more of a reflection uh, of that. We didn't, there wasn't a, uh, a general Ukasey that came down from Switzerland at that point. Things were still a little, things were still a little or a lot disorganized. They were very decentralized. And um, as I mentioned a moment ago, it was, I think it was more the policy du jour, like the plat du jour, and it was just something that had been cooked up. And in a, in a way, too, it could have been because Father LaRoche felt that way about it, and uh, he wanted the uh, the reconciliation to go forward, so he was pushing it, and he maybe got Archbishop Lefebvre to, to sign off on it. Do you they know didn't even in, in his letter, he didn't even inquire as to what the grounds for the annulment were. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, uh, do, do you know if they've developed a, a policy uh, since then? I mean, I'm recognizing that neither of you are uh, members of society anymore, but if just wondering if you've they, heard. They do have, the, they have their own sort of parallel court system, don't they, Father? Uh, yes, they have their own internal tribunals that uh, look at uh, the conciliar annulments and either sign off on them or uh, well, supposedly reject some of them. But um, that is uh, that's something that has been uh, discussed, I think, elsewhere at, at uh, some length. I'm not privy to all the details. They haven't, you know, copied me on all the internal memos for a while. So. Right. Right. Well. <laughs> It's, um, it, uh, it seems to me that they may not have a uh, formal policy even now because, I mean, the question of the annulments is of interest to me because it was one of the things that really started pushing me towards asking more questions and uh, looking into things a bit more because I had always been under the impression that the society uh, had nothing to do with these annulments because of the, you know, Bishop Williamson was someone I read a lot of, and you know, always talking about this being a a false church. But then I was shocked when some people that we knew it at um, the chapel we were attending uh, that one of the husband and wife had been in uh, had been married and then gotten a annulment from the church again on one of these hazy like they were immature, you know, some grounds like that, and. They didn't even go to any tribunal. They just went and talked to Father Peter Scott, and he just said, "No, no problem. You have a, uh, you have an annulment from the the church, so carry on as you are." And then uh, I was scandalized by that, and I remember speaking to Stephen Heiner, and he was like, "Oh, but Nicholas, the society's always done that. Look at what the uh, the nine wrote in their letter." 
So I, I read that, and then that was when I started looking into a lot of other things. One of the uh, um, interesting things, if I recall correctly, Your Excellency, that, that uh, about this case is after the uh, all of the difficulties and, and uh, suits and, and fights that we had with the Society of St. Pius X, uh, which were occasioned by this, that the uh, person who was uh, involved in that particular mission came back to us and told us that, yes, indeed, you, after all, you were right, that it was not a uh, legitimate annulment and that the grounds were phony. I, I remember bringing it up with the, the second wife in the car. She was driving me to the airport after Mass at this particular mission. And I could sense in her voice as well as in her words a certain relief. And that, that same idea, and then eventually her, the new husband uh, came around, as you say, a few, but a few years later. But right away, she had felt guilty. She knew it wasn't right. And she knew that what we were telling her was the truth. So, I mean, it just takes a little tiny bit. So here you have the tragic reality of conscience, a well-formed Catholic conscience and sin, being overridden by political considerations. How unworthy and how sad. People realize that about the Pius X Society and Lefebvre. I don't think they would burn quite so much incense at their shrine. The um, What you mention, that one of the parties feeling uh, slightly uneasy or upset with the annulment is a thing that I've encountered time and time again, where people have approached me uh, on uh, an annulment that was granted by the new church, and they will honestly admi- they will say that they feel very strange about it because it simply doesn't seem right. Mm-hmm. Divorce. That, that, yeah, that in effect it uh, was a divorce that was granted under the title of an annulment. So maybe well, and, we should get into the um, question of what an annulment is and, and go through that a little bit at this point so our people aren't um, uh, unsure as to exactly what we're speaking about. Right, yeah, that's, that's what I was just about to ask because I think that, that that definition's been muddied a lot by what people see the Novus Ordo doing and a lot of people, are, you grow up in that milieu and then you don't really understand what an annulment is. So, Father, could you tell us what exactly, according to Catholic uh, teaching and laws, is an annulment? Okay, good. Um, the, uh, an annulment is a declaration by the church tribunal that the marriage, uh, marriage that was contracted uh, previously was lacking some uh, essential quality, and therefore uh, the marriage bond uh, does not, in fact, uh, exist. Uh, the, it's, uh, technically, it is called a declaration of nullity, declaration of nullity. It's just that the, the term uh, annulment is a lot easier to use, it's more convenient. Unfortunately, in the popular mind, the uh, term annulment has uh, come simply to mean a uh, Catholic divorce, a type of yes. Catholic divorce, of course, which it is not. The way uh, a marriage is declared null is a um, judicial proceeding, and the, the church had established a, a series of, of uh, courts 
to make findings of fact and conclusions of, of, of law in looking at cases like this. The uh, basis, the, the basic idea of uh, the matrimonial bond is that it's something uh, that is based in a contract in the case of uh, uh, between Catholics in the case of a sacrament uh, it's both a contract and a sacrament between, uh, between two baptized people so uh, the church had uh, this understanding traditionally as, as a contract and this contract because of our Lord's own teaching was regarded as indissoluble by any power on earth uh, that is to say, it it, it uh, exists in the sight of uh, Almighty God, and uh, not even the Pope can dissolve uh, a marriage that is a sacramental marriage that is in fact valid. So, if you start with that, if you start with the basic teaching of uh, the gospel, uh, the indissolubility and the unity uh, of marriage, that's the uh, starting point. Since it is, however, a contract, what happens sometimes, and a contract is, is uh, a meeting of the minds or agreement between uh, two people. You have, for a contract, you have, there are certain uh, essential qualities that you have as regards whether you can deliver the goods in the contract, whether there is, uh, in fact, consent, what the obligations of uh, the contract two parties uh, happen to be, and uh, there's also a, a question of, of whether they were free when they uh, when they made the contract, uh, whether they were being forced in some way. So these issues affect the uh, affect any contract and affect also the marriage contract. What would happen in the question of uh, a uh, what we would call a declaration of nullity of, of uh, nullity of a marriage. Uh, typically, it would uh, arise this way: that there was some um, uh, breakdown, as it were, in the married life between uh, the husband and the wife, and uh, it uh, comes. It occurs to one of the parties, or it comes to the attention of one of the parties, that maybe. Uh, uh, there was uh, something in the initial marriage, uh, something was lacking in the initial marriage contract. So uh, the way this would proceed in the old days is uh, you might go to see your parish priest and talk with him uh, about this situation, and if he recommended uh, that you do so, you would go to the marriage tribunal of the uh, diocese. Generally, this would take place after one of the parties had uh, departed from the marriage. The church had then a system to look at cases like these to determine whether there was some uh, essential element missing in the uh, marriage contract, whether something was missing or not. The presumption in church law always was in favor of the validity of the marriage. It was always the uh, presumption that uh, a uh, marriage that was um, uh, contracted enjoyed what they call the presumption of law until you, uh, the contrary was proven. So uh, the uh, church then, the church tribunal would examine uh, the 
whether these conditions were present in in the marriage, there would be a tribunal of of uh, uh, three canonists, three uh, priest judges. There would be a, a canonical uh, attorneys, uh, canonists who would be responsible for presenting the case, and then there would be a guy called the uh, defender of the bond. He was the one who would defend the validity of the marriage. So evidence would be taken. You would go through this uh, judicial proceeding. Uh, there were rules of procedure, just as uh, there are in, in Canadian civil and criminal courts and American civil and criminal courts. There are rules of evidence, things that had to be proven. And then the three priest judges would rule on the case one way or another. The so the ruling, the ruling uh, just to, I, I think maybe to underline the point, the ruling, it's just a finding of fact of saying this is the reality of the situation. They're not actually uh, changing anything or granting anything, or they're just saying this was the reality. And from yes, our that, that, that's an excellent point, and that, that, that really um, can't be emphasized enough, that they're looking at the reality of the situation. And then, and then, Father, could I insert here? Sure. I think we also need to, to emphasize that they have the jurisdiction to do this. They're not outsiders looking in, say, like a Pius X group, saying, well, we feel this because, or because we're learned or we have the books. No, they have jurisdiction to be able to do this. So all of this is tied in with the first question we talked about in our show. Is the conciliar church the true Catholic church, as the Sede privationists like to say, does it have the authority of Christ? And if it has the authority of Christ, then it can make these judgments. But if it does not, that's a terrible mockery. But that doesn't mean that some other self-constituted um, uh, commission or court would have the authority of Christ to make these kinds of judgments. Would that be correct, Father? That, that's exactly correct, because all of the, the, the whole procedure... Of grant, the granting of an annulment is based on jurisdiction that flows from the top down, right, from the top yeah. of the Catholic Church, yeah. and it's it's part of the um, uh, uh, judicial authority that uh, that flows from jurisdiction. You could say that uh, you know don't try this at home, right? It, it doesn't work if you just sort of try this at home. Right. <laughs> it has to be someone <laughs> who actually has jurisdiction. I don't know how that would come out in some sort of canonical principle in Latin, don't try this at home, but maybe we'll, we'll figure that one out. <laughs> Nolite domi probare is what I'm Very good, your excellency. probare. But even with the, uh, the proper jurisdiction, uh, is there any infallibility uh, attached to these uh, decrees, or would it be kind well, of I mean, accept uh, this uh, at your own risk because there could have been an error in the finding of fact? Well, what a court is supposed to do is arrive at moral certitude. You can't uh, arrive at with something like this at what you would call metaphysical certitude. But moral certitude is um, uh, sufficient uh, in uh, a, a matter like this. It's necessary and it's sufficient. So that's uh, that's how it works. So if, if it's a question of some sort of a, a defect of uh, the consent, uh, the court... Uh, would arrive at a conclusion based on the evidence and, and moral certitude. It would have to have moral certitude one way or another. Okay. What would happen is um, 
let us say that a um, marriage was judged to have been um, or was declared at the first court level, they would call it the first instance, to um, be uh, null. And then that uh, uh, would have to be appealed to higher levels because, of, again, of the church's um, uh, regard for the sanctity of marriage, that would then have to be appealed and tested at uh, another level, at the level, level of sometimes of a... Um, uh, of the um, uh, archdi- at an archdiocesan level, and then possibly even uh, eventually to Rome, to the court of the Roman Rota, which was the, the highest court. So uh, you had these uh, uh, appeals to ensure that the um, uh, findings were were verified. Hmm. So it was a very um, uh, strict and closely organized uh, process. So that's that. Uh, and if at the end the church uh, uh, declared that uh, there was uh, um, grounds or the, that that the, the uh, marriage was null, uh, lacking uh, uh, for some reason, then the that would be recorded in the baptismal register where the person's marriage was recorded and it would be regarded as a uh, regarded as a public fact and then the parties would be considered free to uh, be married hmm. so that's now, how the uh, procedure worked right now now father you mentioned um uh coercion as one reason why uh, it might be found that the the contract was lacking uh, mm-hmm. What were the other reasons uh, that before Vatican II that that these uh, decrees would be made? Okay. Well, first of all, it would have to be a, like a, a virtually physical force that overwhelmed the fear, uh, the will with fear. Okay, that would be the type of coercion. Another type um, would be uh, say uh, one's uh, permanent. Uh, incapacity before contracting marriage to perform the marital act. So that would be uh, as regarded as called permanent antecedent uh, impotence. Uh, there uh, were other uh, types of grounds that would involve uh, an error as to the person whom you were marrying. Uh, and uh, that was a very limited, you know, about the identity of the um, uh, person that you were married. You know, if, if you wanted, if it was a case of twins and you wanted to marry Buffy instead of Denise and uh, Denise showed up at uh, the marriage ceremony and you uh, contracted supposedly a marriage with Denise when you really wanted to marry Buffy, well, that would be uh, considered uh, uh, grounds for an annulment. Uh, a type of um, permanent intention, we could say, not to have children. Uh, that would be uh, one way of putting it. Another thing would be a um, uh, uh, some sort of an uh, intention to enter merely into a temporary marriage. Uh, uh, but 
these were things that uh, were inquired about all the time in the uh, by the priest in the questionnaires before parties contracted the marriage. Hmm. So uh, you would have to um, swear under oath to uh, the ex- uh, that certain conditions did not exist. Uh, and um, the, the, the priest would swear you in, you'd take an oath, and then you would uh, uh, sign these uh, documents before the priest would consent to marry you. Well, it seems to me that would be awfully hard to prove uh, nullity at a later date because you'd have to get the court to believe you're a credible witness in saying that you lied to the priest when he made these inquiries at the beginning, and the real truth is that you have this other intention. Well, yes, and and uh, especially, but I can't resist saying this to you, Nicholas. You know how lawyers are. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if the listeners are aware of it, but uh, Nicholas is a, uh, a criminal defense lawyer in Canada. I can't resist it. Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, Here's the thing, though, that it is um, uh, contracts are, as you know from from studying law, are extremely complex things, and there are a lot of circumstances that can uh, affect contracts. Even if you think something is is perfectly clear, that that people understand things the same way. These right. internal conditions that we've talked about, though, that one had, uh, let's say, the uh, intention never to have children. Uh, uh, or to enter into some sort of, let's uh, say, a, like a temporary, uh, dissoluble or, uh, uh, type of marriage, that these things were extremely difficult to prove. And that's uh, you can tell by just looking at the church's procedural manuals, all of the different proofs that were required. Hmm. So, Because the presumption always existed in favor of the validity of the marriage. Because well, and it was considered... Pro- yeah public act yeah right uh, i'm just saying that the proof of how difficult it was to prove these things i suppose would lie in the numbers um do you have any data on uh, how many annulments were granted in well in, years in the united to... states in 1968 um the uh, number was 300 300 were granted and then oh, there's another number oh let's see uh, the uh, so that was 1968, and then in 1991, 63,933 were granted. Wow! So uh, that's a slight increase, you know. And, and um, the uh, Catholic population in the United States hadn't uh, increased correspondingly to those numbers. I take it. No, definitely not. Especially since everyone was on the pill. But that's another story. Um, the. Uh, now, I have to say that, um, you know, in terms of the grounds for annulments that were used before Vatican II, I've been a uh, traditional Catholic priest uh, for, uh, what, since 1977. And I've had uh, people come to me, uh, a good number of people from time to time, um, who have had annulments from the Vatican II Church. And I always listen very carefully and try to um, uh, figure out exactly what uh, the situation was. Uh, in only one case in all those years, uh, I encountered only one case where 
the party might have been give, given an annulment before Vatican II. And that was on the grounds of permanent antecedent impotence. Uh, but in all those years and all the times that I've been asked about annulments and told about the grounds on which annulments have given, uh, have been given, I've only come across one case that might have fit into the old categories. So just briefly, what sort of categories do they have now to get from a number of 300 up to 60-some thousand? Well, they changed a whole bunch of things. Uh, they changed the uh, procedure to make it a lot um, easier to get uh, an annulment. It used to be that you had to go into the uh, uh, diocesan court in the area where the uh, other party uh, to the marriage was living, okay? Uh, but they changed that so you can do this in the convenience of your own home diocese. All right. So th- that was one thing. Then they, uh, after Vatican II, uh, no longer required uh, the use of three judges. Uh, one judge would do. Now, uh, that seems like simply a procedural thing. But if you have uh, three men with canon law degrees supposedly hearing a case, the uh, you supposedly you you have three guys who are going to keep each other honest, or at least make an effort to do that. If you're uh, just a one-man uh, operation, it's uh, easier to let things slide and to say things that are incorrect or that are just plain stupid. So that was another um, uh, another factor that uh, after Vatican II, all of a sudden made it very easy to get uh, an annulment. Uh, another factor was that in the United States, uh, they removed the requirement in the case of an annulment being granted at a lower level. They removed the requirement for it to be appealed to a higher court to be verified. So you could get it at a rel- an annulment at a relatively low level. Now, in 83, they eventually changed that rule, but that really didn't uh, stanch the flow of annulments all that much. What um, really was the game changer, though, were the grounds on which uh, annulments were uh, granted. And they, they introduced a... Um, uh, and all of this, of course, is, is tied in with Vatican II. Vatican II changed, in effect, the understanding of um, uh, the, uh, marriage and the purposes of, of, of marriage. And all of this had uh, an effect on the annulment system. So uh, Vatican II thought, uh, taught no longer that marriage was a contract, but rather was a covenant, which is a, a vaguer sort of modernist term. And remember, the council also reversed, uh, put the ends of marriage, which were uh, traditionally uh, taught as the primary end being procreation and the secondary uh, end, uh, indeed there are several secondary ends, of the uh, mutual consolation and aid of the spouses one to another. So at Vatican II, uh, put both of those on the same level and then flip them so you didn't have a primary end for marriage and introduce this, this idea of, well, um, it's a uh, communion, right? 
Apartheid, which is another one of those vague modernist terms. And they say that, well, uh, you know, the, the, that uh, this communion is not of, uh, of not less value than the other ends of marriage, meaning the primary end. So you have this, this stuff going on in the background as a result of Vatican II. And so in the law, what they did is in, it's now in the new uh, JP2 code of 1983, uh, they uh, put in this canon 1095, which um, is the basis for most of the annulments that are granted. And it's, it says that uh, they are incapable of contracting marriage who, so then they say lack the sufficient use of reason. Okay, that's... Obviously, that's correct. But the second part of the canon says, those who suffer from a grave lack of discretion, of judgment, concerning essential matrimonial rights and duties, which are to be mutually given and accepted. And then three, those who are not capable of assuming the essential obligations of matrimony due to causes of a psychic nature. Right. Now, I, that does not, I think, refer to um, uh, the amazing Karnak and mind reading, but uh, refers to psychological uh, conditions. So what was done with this canon is this is something that you could, is so big you can drive a truck through uh, because of the um, nature of, of, of modern psychology, what an imprecise science it is, and uh, you can basically get a psychologist to say anything. And this is exactly what happened, that people were granted annulments on, uh, uh, under this canon 1095 because of stuff like uh, psychological incapacity, uh, inability to critically evaluate the person that you're going to marry, um, uh, lack of maturity to grasp what the marital relation entails, um, uh, lack of ability to make existential judgments. There's one for you, right? Yeah. Existential judgments. Need some ph German philosophy for that or something? Uh, yes, this is normal, yeah. <laughs> um, the, or, um, let's see, uh, being incapable of good judgment in regard to interpersonal relationships and specifically to the special relationship demanded of marriage. Then, of course, we get intangible factors that cannot be objectively measured for all persons of all backgrounds and cultures. Personality disorder. Whenever I hear disorder, I think my desk is disordered. Right? Um, the uh, inability to realize that marital consent is a community of the whole of life. Oh, um, you know, and I mean, this goes on and on and on for uh, for pages. So, uh, you uh, this particular canon, and to the extent, uh, to a certain extent, a number of the other canons as well, was used. This was uh, what gave the tr modernist tribunals the um, uh, ability to uh, annul any marriage. In fact, the the head of a um, tribunal on Long Island when I was a priest out there boasted that there's no marriage that I can't annul. And that's certainly how it seems. So th Boy. this is the explanation of uh, the, the long explanation of uh, 
of uh, how and why they were able to annul these uh, marriages. So do you have any existential comments, Your Excellency? Or <laughs> <laughs> No, I think we pretty much covered it here. <laughs> right. So in other words, we're just sort of, obviously now we're, we're moving towards the, uh, the Bergoglio uh, position, as has been covered on other shows on the Restoration Radio Network, I believe, that uh, that uh, there there'll simply be a further extension of these bogus terms of annulments, and um, the popular understanding of uh, Catholic divorce will simply be be further enhanced. If you've got a good cause for a divorce, you'll be able to get a divorce, and they'll almost uh, guarantee that for you. And it all started with those changes in the in the 60s, and from the start, because of its confusion. Pius X society did not stand up to defend holy matrimony. End mm-hmm. of story. Yep. Right. Well, um, we're, we're going to have to move on to our, our second topic for the show, but just before we do, I, I think uh, we, Father and uh, your, your Lordship have demonstrated the grave, grave problems for many reasons with uh, Novus Ordo, quote, annulments, unquote, uh, I wonder if, Lord, you could just, what would you say to people who are new to tradition or are coming to tradition that find themselves in a situation like that where they had a, a marriage that most likely was was valid and then they were granted a decree of nullity on one of these specious grounds that Father Chicada outlined, but they're now coming to tradition? Well, Father Chicada will kill me for this, Nicholas, but I would say send an email to Father Chicada. <laughs> he only has several he only has several hundred emails he still needs to answer on those and related topics. But um, in other words, a priest who has some idea what he's talking about needs needs to look at these things. But I would like to make a distinction because there are traditional groups that <clears throat> take it upon themselves <clears throat> actually to to study and to judge a case or to judge the decision of a case on its own merits as though we could get into the existential knowledge of the marriage communion or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and we, that the point is we can't. Um, something that needs to stand out very clearly is that sometimes there's what's called defective form. That is to say that a, couple got, a Catholic couple got married in front of a Protestant minister. No question about it, it's invalid. They're, both parties are free to contract a valid marriage. But uh, once you're talking about fear or immaturity, especially immaturity, those related topics, no one has authority from Christ today. No one has any Catholic church authority to be able to judge those things. Not the conciliars, because they don't have it at all, nor the faith, nor the traditional Catholics. They don't either. And sometimes they, they try to cheat. So let's, um, let's use our heads here, be calm, send a nice email to Father Chicana, and he'll do his very best to be able to help you out or maybe send you in the direction of someone who can. But that's, you see the distinction? That's an important distinction, I think, for people to, uh, to recognize and to appreciate. Hmm. Well, for those of us who are just joining us, you're listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Nicholas Wansbutter, and I'm joined by His Lordship Bishop Daniel Dolan and Father Anthony Chicada. And today we've been uh, discussing annulments. We spoke about uh, the role that they played in the uh, expulsion from the Society of St. Pius X of uh, certain priests in the 1983 and following. We discussed the traditional Catholic, the real Catholic teaching or, or what annulments are and 
what the procedures were before Vatican II, and then we covered uh, what's happened in the Novus Ordo sect since Vatican II. So that takes us into the second part of our show, which is uh, uh, linked somewhat. I mean, it, we're, it's about marriage, and uh, we're talking about the uh, Catholic order of the of the household. Um, so, uh, uh, Bishop Dolan, uh, perhaps you could start us off with a, uh, what's our starting point, or what should our starting you know, point be on the... I think, Nicholas, that there, there, there's a true link. Um, I, I, I concluded the, my, my, my commentary about the, for the annulment question by saying that the Pius X Society did not stand up for the inviolability of the sacrament of matrimony. That's the job of a man who's going to be the head of a household. That's the job of a priest who is called, and rightly so, father. He has to stand up for what is right, even though the world is going crazy, and even though there'll be a terrific amount of pressure to go along to get along. You have to take a position which is a correct and a Catholic one, and you have to do your duty to be able to see that through. You can't be constantly changing in order to please others, as some of the traditional groups have done to their ruin and also to the ruin of souls. So I think in the second part, if I understand it, we want to talk about the um, misunderstood role of the husband as the head of the family. Going back to my young priesthood in the, in the late 70s, I can remember being um, somewhat maybe put off, uh, not baffled, but, but, but put off by this because the cultural current was so strong in favor of feminism and um, women who came to be prepared for marriage with their intendeds were so immersed in that already that it was always very much of a hard sell. It was a hard sell to get women to understand that it's not equality we're talking about here. It never was equality. That the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, sacred scripture, infallible God's truth. End of the story. Then the other, then I think the flip side of that coin is, is to say that it's a hard sell for the husbands too, because a man would often take that, and in my sad experience of counseling, uh, very often he would reduce that to its uh, most selfish and immature proportions. Well, I'm the man, and you, Father said you have to do what I say. So if I tell you to get up and change the channel, then you're going to get up and change the channel. That, 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 that kind of a silly immaturity. Actually, those kinds of things, I think, go on sometime. Uh, so making a, making a parody of the whole Catholic understanding, the natural the natural law understanding of of the, the the hierarchy, let's say that the hierarchy of the home, that the man in God's plan is the head of the family, he's the head of his wife, and um, the woman in God's plan is the heart of the family, and he has, and uh, she, uh, her heart is in turn loved and honored and enshrined by the husband. The husband loves the wife and has to let the wife know every day that he loves her. That's uh, very clear. That's his duty. And she, for her part, St. Paul, of all possible things that he says, he says that uh, that the um, wife must 
obey her husband. She must show him that is to say, a do in a proper respect, which I think we can only understand in the context of uh, Catholic reverence. She reverences her husband. She was she does nothing to bring dishonor upon him. Certainly not in public by her tongue or her action or her dress or even in private. And the husband, in turn, takes care of his wife. Uh, the, the reason why these roles become so difficult even to explain to, to young, engaged couples today is because of this rampant immaturity on the part of men, particularly, and this bold, brassy, uh, sensual type of, of feminism on the part of the women, and an, an equal degree of sort of paganism and, and selfishness, self-centeredness. These are the, the, my, I'm convinced that the marriage vocation is, is, is a vocation to utter an absolute sanctity and to self-denial and to death to self. And that's why our, our blessed Savior made it a marriage, uh, made it a sacrament, and that's why he, he annexed to the marriage uh, sacrament these what we call sacramental graces that give a husband and wife the right at any time to ask our Lord for assistance, actual grace that will come to them so they can fulfill their duties. It's not easy, Nicholas, but of course, Mm -hmm. you probably need to say something here because I'm not married, but you are married. Right. (laughs) Well, uh, and I suppose, as you say, it's hard to even explain to people what the hierarchy of the household is because that very idea is so anathema in modern culture, and people are just, it's kind of beaten into them from a very young age, although I think I'm very fortunate to have married a woman who grew up behind the Iron Curtain in Mm -hmm. communist Poland, which ironically, despite being under communist control, the Iron Curtain actually insulated Eastern European countries from uh, Vatican II to a certain, to an extent and to a lot of this feminism things like that. So, uh, you know, she has still a bit of, uh, a bit of that innate sense. Um, but, uh, I, I think, uh, when we were, uh, discussing how to go with the show, I, I wanted to, as you mentioned, Lord, focus more on the man because it seems to me that mm-hmm. if you have a good leader, th- that, that's, going to be very important to uh, to bringing about the proper order in the household and that it seems to me that women are naturally inclined to follow a husband who leads yes, and, yes. And, and who loves God and uh, you know there's a Russian proverb that Bishop Williamson likes to, to say that I think has some uh, wisdom to it it's that uh, um, as the tomato plant is to the stake around which it climbs, so the woman is to the man. So, and I, I as part of my background, apart from being a lawyer, I was at one time an infantry officer. So, I, you know, we're in a spiritual warfare. I sometimes think of it from that perspective, too. If you have a good officer leading mediocre, even not very good soldiers, he can still get more out of them than good soldiers being led by a poor officer who could get them all killed very quickly. Sure, sure. And, and I think the point really, the, the point here really is that, uh, as with annulments, so with the hierarchy of the home and of the marriage in God's plan, these are, these are elements of the natural law. We're all born with that natural law written upon our hearts. 
It's uh, something which is either <clears throat> erased or weakened considerably by environment, I grant you, or it could be reinforced, as you say, behind the Iron Curtain that was a particular, it has some, some benefits after all, or, say, being raised in a good traditional Catholic home where your parents really model these roles mm-hmm. for you. Uh, but but it, it's something which is it's, it's of nature, just as that, that woman in the first part of the segment talking about, she realized that her her new her husband's annulment was was bogus. She realized that she was relieved to have the topic brought up. It had always troubled her conscience. So too does a woman realize that her happiness is to be is to be found in respect for her husband's authority, and that she can, as you say, lean upon her husband. But the the, the great problem today is what we clergy sometimes refer to as the Peter Pan complex, that is to say, how many young men there are, and not so young men, who constantly uh, stamp their feet and shout out, I won't grow up, I won't grow up. And they refuse to grow up, and they're selfish, and they're immature, and they're self-centered. And, and because they're not reliable, and someone has to take take the someone has to take the authority. In effect, someone has to make the decisions. Someone has to make sure that the family life somehow goes on. That's the wife, but the wife will do it, but she will do it at a terrible price, and that it's the price of resentment, and that's the price of bitterness and of um, revolt, and it's the price of her tongue. Uh, the husband will, will get many a tongue lashing from the wife, and, 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 and he will know no respect at all from her, nor will he have, nor will he have earned any. So there's a, there's a total, total reversal of that on the one hand, you have to say that. But on the other hand, it's not just something modern. That's, that's really human nature. I mean, we all know how many traditional Catholic families where the woman is the head of the household. There's no question about it, as that, um, that fictional English barrister. What, Rums? Rums? Rumpole of the Bailey. Rumpole of the Bailey used to refer to his wife, not entirely tongue-in-cheek, she who must be obeyed. And there are many, many women who may justly be referred to by many a hand-packed husband as she who must be obeyed. And it's always sad to see that. And you wonder, what's the story here? How did this happen? Because I'll tell you what, she'll never be happy. The children don't really have, a, have, a, have too much of a chance having a happy childhood, and the husband will never be happy, too, because the divine order, the natural order in the home has been reversed for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. Well, one, one thing um, uh, I would focus on a little bit is the term that um, uh, both of you used, uh, and Nicholas as well as an infantry officer, that uh, you have to be a leader. Yes. Now that that implies not simply uh, you're not an effective leader if you simply give commands. Uh, if uh, occasionally you simply give the right command at uh, the right time, but you lead others as as a good officer by uh, example and by showing those beneath you that you. Uh, are reasonable person that you know what the game plan is that you know what the strategy uh, is and that you are determined to uh, put it into practice so it's not simply uh, you know your excellency you talk about uh, the guy having his wife change the channels and yeah. uh, <laughs> that is um, uh, that does not exactly show leadership in other words, that's simply uh, giving uh, childish commands. So the, the, the important thing is is that you have to be 
uh, husband has to be aware that he is uh, the head of the household, that he has to be a true leader and a true example, and that the way he leads has to be uh, uh, and gives example is has to be in in accord with the law of Almighty God and and what uh, our blessed Lord Himself expects of him in uh, in married life. And then you have a chance at it uh, uh, being a success. Right. The every every one of these, every one of those um, uh, potential problem areas in a marriage, whether it be in-laws or money or child rearing or any other question that or religion, indeed, or modesty, any question that could come up in the home, each one of those is a challenge for the uh, the Christian spirit, the maturity, the spiritual adulthood of of husband and of wife, and it and and they all as as leadership does. They all, they all lead you back to the Aristotelian concept of love. Love, our working definition of love, is, is, is that which seeks the good of the one loved. It makes you forget yourself and your short-term benefits, and it makes you seek the good of the one whom you love. So in that sense, a military leader could be said to love his inferiors because he makes his decisions based on their good and the greater good of the cause. And so to the husband has to forget about him, himself and his short-term good in order to uh, make his wife happy, sometimes by making her unhappy, as, as is the case indeed for husband and wife together in, in child-rearing. But, uh, but you, always, you always consult the good and, and indeed the highest good, that is to say Almighty God and God's will, for these things to be able to work out. But when there's this rampant immaturity and self-centeredness and shallowness, it's very difficult even to talk to talk in these terms because people don't understand what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a lot of people, they, I was going to say, a lot of people, they, when they think of a hierarchy of the household, they think that to be head of the household, that means that you're some sort of tyrant just yes, lording it over the can, family. Yeah, the one who can scream the loudest. Sometimes it's the mother, sometimes it's the father, and, so, and very often today it's the children. And whoever can scream the loudest and last the longest, maybe longest, the lung power, you know, like babies in church sometimes during the sermon, you wonder, where did that baby get those lungs from? Wow. <laughs> uh, 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 and it's a bit the same thing in the Catholic home sometimes, I'm afraid. It, it, it's whoever, by tyranny, whoever, by this sort of a psychological or emotional force, can impose his will on the others and make, make the others to walk in fear of him. It's that person then who... Who gets to be, you know, king for a day or queen for a day in that in that sad, sad home? And, and of course, it's entirely other, other because ours is the religion of Him who reigned from the wood of the cross, and Christ is the King on the cross. What what a totally different outlook is ours? But you have to be grounded in the Catholic faith and Catholic spirituality, and also the natural law, some sort of an understanding about how these things are are, are supposed to work, and all of this has, it takes time and has to be done calmly and quietly and uh, spiritually. Right, and a good piece of advice that I received from a, uh, a priest in the very early days of my married life, um, in terms of uh, enforcing the uh, or exerting one's authority, it, it isn't that yelling that. And uh, he he said that really, even if your wife isn't uh, listening to you or submitting right away, you don't get angry. You just you have to be firm but gentle and 
go out of your way to be the best husband possible and mm-hmm. you know uh, help out where you can and you know just and I, and I found then eventually things do start falling in, in, into place. If you appeal to the principles, I think that's very important. And, and you say, rather than that for an emotional argument, for there to be a quiet discussion, say, what, what do we both submit to here? What are the principles? How can we be in agreement here about the principles taught to us by our Catholic faith, by the Church of old? Uh, and because after all, if we're united, we're, 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 we are not united in some sort of a cold contract or an, an emotional contract. We're united in a sacramental marriage contract and bond. That's something quite different. I was reading something the other day very beautifully about, uh, I think it's St. Alphonsus, that for all of Our Lady's beauty and all of her incomparable qualities, St. Joseph didn't love her for any of those things. He loved her for God because God gave her to him as his spouse and vice versa for all of Joseph's many, many qualities as the ideal husband and head of the family. It was, it was truly a marriage in, 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 in God. It was, it was sacred in that sense. And unless our Lord and the, the faith are the bedrock and the very center, the heart of this kind of a marriage, how could there be any real, a, a, a real way to work through these, these disagreements, I wonder? Mm-hmm. And I think implicit in what we've been discussing, but is worth uh, worth highlighting, is that the, the husband needs to be a, a moral authority in the household yeah. as well, and leading by example in terms of living an upright life himself, but also it seems to me the husband has a, a duty to continue to study the faith and make sure he, he knows and so that he can teach the family and lead them in that regard. I, I think I think that's that's extremely important. Two other things that I can think of would be first of all that husbands should pray for their wives, and husbands and wives together should pray for their children, and the whole family should pray together, and that should be done on a daily basis. And when problems come up, the first thing that one should do is to turn to God individually, as well as marriage, or as well in the family. Let's ask our Lord for help and for a solution. That makes it, that makes it, God hears those kinds of prayers. They're very rare, so there's not too much competition going on in heaven. So you're bound to be heard, I think. Let's ask God for his assistance. And then another, I think, very important point is sort of a quiet, prudent, listening kind of a conversation. You know how women have to talk and talk and talk. And by, by a lot of talk, a woman can kind of, can kind of reach, reach the point that a, that a husband has reasoned his way to. A wife has to sort of talk her way to. And a husband then has to be very, very patient, and he has to listen to this. There has to be, there has to be talk, maybe questions, ex, um, uh, the expression of feelings and emotions. You have to go through all of that um, without... In, in being very gentle in one's manner, very loving, but without yielding anything on the principles. Besides, if a husband is every day proving that he truly loves his wife, that she is the treasure of his life, and if the wife is truly committed to showing deep reverence and respect towards her husband, whom she also loves very much too, obviously, then any problem will have its solution in time. I think these are these are the kinds of things that usually are not too much tried when there are marriage difficulties. And, and one other thing, if I could share another small story, it seems to me that part of being a leader is making the tough choices and 
taking the uncomfortable course sometimes when you have to. I think yeah. uh, w- one thing that seems to me is it's a lot easier to just let something slide maybe, like uh, the issue of uh, pants. Uh, is mm-hmm. sometimes a bit of a bugaboo in traditional Catholic circles, sometimes uh, uh, oh, controversial. And so I, it seems to me that a, a lot of men, maybe they figure, well, the easier path is I'm going to not insist on that. But it seems to me that the uh, dress and comportment of the family is something that is really, uh, it sets the whole tone for the family, and it's something that the mm-hmm. husband, even though it may be uncomfortable for him, uh, has to uh, enforce that, and uh, I would just say that it's something that can be done. Uh, anyone who's listened to the, there's been a couple restoration radio shows that my wife has been on, um, the relocation flagship show and the uh, health flagship show. So, he, hearing her, you'll know she's not a shrinking violet, but uh, and just you know to do mindlessly whatever I say. But um, is that her in the background? <laughs> not one of the. <laughs> <laughs> one of the children, but um, one of the children with the lungs that you don't know where they come from, the Lord. <laughs> ah, yes, where do those uh, lungs come from? <laughs> but, um, I mean, that was something that I insisted on. Uh, I wasn't a tyrant about it, but I just explained, look, these are the principles. I think this is something yes. that is important right. that that we have to do, and uh, it also involved me dressing myself appropriately as, as well. Yes, that's true. Um, that's, that's instead right. of just me wearing jeans and a t-shirt and sitting on the couch saying you need to stop wearing pants and wear wear a dress i started trying to dress better myself as well and instead of you know well i mean i'm somewhat notorious now i suppose in traditional catholic circles is a, a lot of, some justin soda likes to call me chesterton because of the way i dress <laughs> <laughs> oh but it's true that we've we've lost an awful lot and and the way we dress really reflects on a daily level our attitude towards what we have to call the revolution because the revolution is everywhere and i'm i'm on people right now i'm on men in particular at my church to dress properly to wear a suit and tie a jacket and tie to church on sunday out of respect for sunday and and the lord's day and and the holy mass but uh our adi- our attitude towards life itself and towards society uh and towards this idea of respect is, I think is, is expressed very clearly by the way we dress. Well, we're, uh, we've actually gone a little bit over our, our uh, time frame, but uh, before we wrap up, uh, Bishop Dolan and I have been talking a lot back and forth here. Father Chicada, do you have uh, any comments you'd like to add before we wrap up? Well, the, the uh, just to reaffirm what Bishop Dolan said on the uh, nature of the uh, role of the husband in the house household, and the great responsibility that he has, and that uh, it's something that he has to take uh, seriously and look on in a look upon in a spiritual, uh, uh, truly in a spiritual way. And if he gets his priorities uh, straight there, he will understand exactly what his his uh, role is is supposed to be, how he's supposed to be a source of um, uh, leader, true leadership and inspiration for uh, all the members of his family. Mm-hmm. And any closing thoughts, Bishop Dolan? Well, just just to reaffirm that the the the, the marriage vocation, the vocation to the married life is is a, is, is a vocation to a life of of uh, strict and, and even severe uh, holiness, 
and it is only in the context I think of of, of this idea of respect that uh, that a woman and a, and a man together in marriage can make a happy home and family, and no woman will ever be happy. Uh, re- revolting against her husband, and if she's revolting, it's probably because her husband himself has been behaving in a revolting fashion on one level or another. So let them both look to their own consciences, to their own souls. Lent's a great time for doing that, and then and then make some r- resolutions. It's it's the same thing as as in our Catholic faith, our own spiritual lives. We're always failing, and we're failing out of human weakness and selfishness and sin. But we need to examine the principles again. We need to admit our guilt, ask for forgiveness. Obviously, husband and wife need mutually to ask each other for forgiveness every day, every night. That's absolutely essential for harmony in the home. I'm sorry are the golden words, after all. And then you start over again, and then you start over again. But the main thing has to be this. We agree on the principles. We cleave to these principles. And we, we have at least the ideal to which we were, by which we want to live our, our married life together. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I guess the only thing, or just a thought I would add, is someone who's been married for almost ten years. Uh, I think for, for the man, the focus shouldn't be on the privileges of uh, of rank, if I can use that terminology, but the the duties that that imposes. And I think if yes. you focus on uh, accomplishing your duty as the uh, husband and father that that's that's very important to trying to uh, establish that catholic uh, hierarchy and order in the household mm-hmm. so um that uh, brings us uh, to the end of our show and uh, i thank both uh, your lordship and father for uh, joining me today and for the another very interesting conversation well you're certainly and welcome it has been interesting. And uh, for our listeners, uh, uh, I just remind you that uh, we're always asking for help with our apostolate of Restoration Radio, but, of course, the priests, they have lots of work to do as well, our, our guests, and uh, we'd ask you to also consider trying to support their apostolates and all the good work that they're doing. And uh, the uh, mailing address for St. Gertrude the Great Church is 4900 Rialto Road, Westchester, Ohio. And unfortunately, I've uh, neglected to write down for myself the uh, the zip code. 45069. Right. So uh, you you can uh, I encourage people to direct uh, donations there to support the uh, work that Bishop Dolan and Father Chicada and the other priests of that church are doing and uh, their missions. Uh, also, I remind listeners of... Uh, Father Chikata's website, sggresources.org. And, uh, Father, is there anything new of note that you'd want to point out to listeners on that website? Well, that's sort of our portal site, and it connects to uh, a number of uh, uh, different sites. It also offers the possibility of uh, using the... um, uh, using either PayPal or a credit card to contribute to our apostolate. So that you'll see on one of the pages. You can um, order my book, Work of Human Hands, the Theological Critique of the Mass of Paul VI. And then as you follow some of the links on it, some will take you to uh, my uh, 
films on the Novus Ordo Missae. Uh, others, uh, another link will take you to articles, and another in- uh, link will take you to uh, my Quidlibet uh, blog. And there's a um, uh, generally every week or two there's a new post on the blog, and you can get yourself put on the the mailing list, the email list there for uh, alerts as uh, we post different things. So it's sggresources.org. All right. Thank you for that, Father. And I'd, I once again encourage our listeners to visit that website for all the things that Father mentioned. A lot, lots more information and education to be had on that website. So um, that, that brings us to the end of our show, and uh, thank you once again, Your, Lord, your Lordship and Father. You're very Pleasure welcome. Pleasure to be here. You're very Pleasure welcome. Talk to right. you again next month, God willing. All right. Thank you. Good night. Good night. We at Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and your faith, that you please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those who have donated, we offer a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. And if you have any questions or comments, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you can email us, clerical at truerestoration.org, and we'd, be, we'd love to hear from you. Also, this show and all shows on Restoration Radio Network are copyright of True Restoration and cannot be reproduced without permission. All rights are reserved. Uh, however, if you contact us at mail at truerestoration.org, it's usually very easy to uh, negotiate or arrange permission for reproduction of our show. Thank you uh, all again for listening, and uh, for the restoration, I'm Nicholas Wansbutter. Till next month, may God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.